0: Where do ideas like freedom, equality, compassion for the vulnerable, consent for sex, ideas that we take for granted today, where do they come from? Uh, It hasn't always been that way. How do these ideas become so widely accepted? And how did it become unthinkable to deny them today? We explore these questions with our guest, Glenn Scrivener, in his new book, The Air We Breathe. I'm your host, Scott Ray. And I'm Sean McDowell. And this is Think Biblically from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Then when I first saw the title for this, I, I must admit, I expected this to be about the cultural air of secularism that we breathe today. But you're talking about something completely different. What's the main idea you're getting, trying to get across? Why does it matter so much?
1: Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I, I grew up in Australia, and uh, I never really realized how sweet the air smells in Australia. There are all these eucalyptus trees, and so they kind of <laughs> mentholate the air. It's basically like a cold remedy carried <laughs> upon the breeze, 24-7. I never noticed because I grew up there and then I left and came to the UK where I live now. And now only when I go back to Australia, when I touch down in Sydney, I notice the warm, sweet air. Because sometimes you have to leave your atmosphere in order to recognize what you'd always always taken for granted. And the idea with this book is the air stands for the moral intuitions that we have, the assumptions that we hold, the gut instincts that we have about what is the good life. And uh, I, I identify a number of those gut instincts that we have about the good life, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. And like air, these are life-giving to us. They are ubiquitous and they are invisible to us. And it's interesting that you say um, about secularism and whether secularism is more the air that we breathe. Even the concept of the secular is a value that Christianity has taught to the world. So the real thing shaping the values and the moral intuitions of this world is not secularism. It's the original Jesus revolution. In other words, Christianity.
2: Now you come to this with your background experience, like you said, from being in Australia. How does that uniquely shape what you're observing about the West and why focus just on the West?
1: It's not because the West is best. Um, I think the West has um, its own very distinctive and very poisonous brew of uh, historical calamities. And I press into those in the book. Um, And it's not that... It's not that the church uh, comes out as the hero of this book. Um, Very often we are the worst perpetrators when it comes to holding us to the standards of these values. I guess I talk about the West because that that is the air that I breathe. Um, I'm an Australian living in the UK. I'm writing for that kind of audience and a US audience. I'm writing in English. Other atmospheres are available but it's interesting you know i grew up in an australian anglican church and uh, when you think about the average anglican in the world i don't know what you think of if you think of an episcopalian in sort of uh, american terms actually the average anglican in the world is a nigerian woman about 20 years old wow and there are there are more anglicans in nigeria than there are people in england wow and <laughs> What's fascinating is I grew up in Australia and just imagine that 20 year old woman in Lagos. We both share a spiritual heritage that goes back to certain developments in the church in England in the 16th century and back further than that. But those developments have really shaped the world and not just the West. The West has gone on to shape all sorts of other cultural uh, interplays through international law and through Hollywood and all sorts of things like that. And then the church uh, has gotten into so many other non-Western uh, cultures. And I, I could have talked about Pentecostalism in South America or Anglicanism in Africa or Presbyterianism in South Korea. Um, so I, I, I'm not wanting to say West is best, but I am wanting to say uh, probably if you are picking up this book and reading it in English, these seven values have shaped you and it's worth centering on your breathing.
0: And you're saying that all seven of these key values come to explicitly from Christianity.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: So yeah, so okay. So let me. It wasn't. It was. But so it wasn't always this way, right? right? The ancient world you describe a brutal culture, gladiator games, crucifixion, hmm. you know, a whole host of other things, infanticide, right. uh, sexual abuse. Uh, so would it be fair to say that Christianity civilized the culture?
1: Well. It it certainly took a long time about it, um, and, and that's sort of one of the complaints that quite rightly people will raise. If Christianity is such a civilizing influence, why did it take so long to eliminate things like the gladiatorial games or slavery or any of these other evils? But I think... When you take a very long term view, um, I think someone someone like the the moralist William Leckie pointed to the the elimination of the gladiatorial games in in about the fifth century as uh, one of the greatest moral reforms in history. And uh, we could probably look back to the abolition of the the transatlantic slave trade in the 19th century as another kind of epochal moral transformation uh, that happened. These things took a long time to happen because to go from Christ to church takes quite a long time and to go from church to the world takes an even uh, longer time. But Jesus, I guess he doesn't mind taking his time. It it, it might feel ex- excruciating and infuriating to us, but he says that his movement will work like yeast works through a batch of dough or like a mustard seed grows into the largest plant. Uh, He's working on a very long and and large timescale, but undeniably it is Christianity that brought about these sorts of reforms, Mm. like the abolition of the slave trade or the overturning of the gladiatorial games.
2: Make that connection a little bit more explicit for us, in the sense of how freedom, as it was understood in the ancient world, contrasts with a Christian view of freedom, and how Christian ideas helped overturn slavery.
1: So... For an ancient mind, inequality is absolutely baked into the world. It Mm. is just very obvious that the gods are at the top of the hierarchy and the slaves are at the bottom. And that is neither a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. And justice for an ancient thinker was not really about equalizing people, justice was about enforcing inequality. So ancient thinkers like Plato, Aristotle, they, they would talk about Slaves as living tools, just as you have, you know, a mechanical tool like a shovel to dig a hole. You have a living tool, uh, a slave who can row your boat for you or, or grind your corn for you. Um, they are living tools and they can be treated as living tools because nature itself teaches us, say, says the ancient thinker. Nature itself teaches us that some were born to rule and some were born to be ruled over. And when you put yourself into the sandals of an ancient thinker, they start to persuade you because they start to say, haven't you noticed that some people are really good at taking care of their lives? And there are some people who cannot manage their own affairs. And wouldn't it be good for those who are very good at ruling to rule over those who just can't handle their own lives? They can't manage their own affairs. Wouldn't it be great if you had masters and slaves? And, And so that was absolutely natural to the ancient mind. And what's fascinating about that is that that is so unnatural to our way of thinking. Um, we kind of, we are revolted by that idea. We're revolted by people being thought of as as tools. Why is that? Well, Christianity gives us so many uh, different angles on this, but we were created equally in God's image on page one of the Bible. We, we are made in God's image, both male and female. Uh, we are redeemed by the savior so that, doesn't matter how much we've sinned, the blood of Christ is for us. Uh, It doesn't matter how righteous we think we are, the blood of of Christ is necessary to be shed for us. And there's this incredible equalizer that comes in in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, it takes an incredibly long time to work its way, like yeast through the batch of dough, to work its way through the church, and then to work its way through society. But it's Christianity that, that has given us this instinct for equality.
0: So, Glenn, let's think about uh, the, the value, the virtue of compassion, uh, especially toward the weak and vulnerable. What was the ancient world like when it came to things like pity, compassion, things like that? And what did it take for Christianity to change that?
1: Well, I mean, the ancient virtues were things like wisdom and justice and courage and the, the sorts of things that uh, work well as a soldier, and if you want to raise up an army, you want a lot of wisdom and justice and courage. And Christianity comes along and makes an absolute virtue out of love. And uh, Larry Hurtado, who was a great sort of historian of the early church, um, said that there's there's just really no parallel to the Christian church in terms of its love ethic. Um, suddenly God is love. And Christ is, he's called in Titus too. He's, he is kindness when, you know, the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared. So that's Titus three, the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared. So Jesus is kindness himself. He teaches us the good Samaritan and, and says, you know, the, the moral to the story of the good Samaritan is not to try to be cleverer than the guy who got beaten up. It's not to try to be tougher than the guy who got beaten up. It's to be like the good Samaritan to go and do likewise and to stoop and serve and suffer and, and redeem and and so it birthed a movement in which compassion was this great virtue, and it's fascinating to me to compare the way of Jesus with the way of nature. Um, if we've learnt from biology that there is the sacrifice of the weakest and the survival of the fittest, I guess in Christianity what we've what we see in Christ is the sacrifice of the fittest, Jesus, in order to save the the weakest, who is us, and and Christ really overturns and upends that kind of, uh, that way of nature that is read in tooth and claw and, and births things like hospitals, which just weren't really a thing in the ancient world. Um, you would have a sick bay for your soldiers to try to return them to military service. You'd have a sick bay for slaves to try to return them to economic utility. But this idea of sort of healthcare that was universal and free at the point of access and, and, um, was just an extraordinary um, development in the ancient world that was birthed out of Christianity. Um, there's, There's all sorts of compassionate movements that were birthed from this gospel.
2: What about the view of women? Maybe compare and contrast how the ancient world women are viewed in terms of their value and their rights and how the church kind of challenged that and potentially what you think that contributed to women growing so significantly within the Christian church.
1: Well, Larry Hurtado, in in his book um, *Destroyer of the Gods*, um, at one point makes this estimate that in in Rome there were about 130 men for every hundred women, largely because of the exposure of little girls, um, the the infanticide practiced wow. on little girls, because little, little girls were not as economically useful, and. Uh, and so they were simply exposed. There's a there's a harrowing letter that has sort of been passed down from antiquity in, in the first century BC. A Roman soldier writes back to his wife, and he says, "I'm in Alexandria until the spring, and I'll send money soon. And I know that you're pregnant. If it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, throw it out. Uh, I'll be back to you." Wow. Uh, you know, <laughs> Apollonia sends her greetings, but you know it's it's and it's just passed off. Um, just with a a, a carelessness and an ease. Um, That kind of exposure of little girls, especially, and the disabled was kind of how the ancient world um, operated. And yet, um, Larry Hurtado in in his book says, while there are about 130 men for every 100 women in Rome, in the church, that was um, flipped on its head. There are about 130 women for every hundred men. Hmm. And this was noticed at the time. There was a, a very uh, acerbic critic of Christianity called Celsus, who in the second century just said, well, Christianity, it's just for women, children, and slaves. And you can almost hear the curl in his lip as he says that, women, children, and slaves. And yet, you know, Rodney Stark, the, uh, another historian, says, you know, he he doesn't know why every woman didn't become a Christian uh, <laughs> back in the early church why it's it's a little bit hard for us to hear some of the reasons why um because actually it was the the marriage and family program of Jesus um that had such a large impact on the equalization of the sexes Jesus comes along and and um basically says that men must be as um, restrained in their sexuality as women had always been expected to be. And there was an an incredible equalization of the sexes. There was a a dignity, a singleness that Jesus gave um, to women. And so they were not simply prized for their childbearing. Um, He brought in... An incredibly strict kind of lifelong monogamy within marriage, uh, which was wonderful for women in the early church and and in the early centuries, because it meant that men were tied to their women and to their children and in a society that had no sort of social safety nets. Um, this was brilliant for, for the dignity and the worth and the protection of women. So for, for lots of reasons, women started to have a, a far, far higher status and import within the church than they did in the wider culture.
0: So, Glenn, in light of that, why, why do you think that Christianity over the centuries has gotten the reputation of being harmful to women?
1: Well, sometimes it's because it has been. Um, and sometimes, you know, the, the, ch- the church has very often gotten a bad reputation because it's been bad. And so that, that really needs saying over a whole range of, of, uh, uh, of issues. Um, so sometimes the church really, really has been um, uh, appallingly misogynistic. And um, I think the church does need to, to repent where that has been the case. But what I always want to do is while acknowledging the failures of the church in so many different ways, I also want to point to the standard by which we're judging the church. Um, who was it who taught us? to treat women with such dignity and such equality. And when you look at pre-Christian and non-Christian cultures, you realize that that is not a natural or obvious or universal thing but that it has come to us through the Jesus revolution. So has the church um, at times failed women? Yes. Has the church at times failed all sorts of people? Absolutely it has. But I I always want to go back to by what standard are we judging these things? And I think to come to Jesus, we get the most beautiful and life-giving standards of the equality of the sexes.
0: So let me pursue that just a little bit further. Especially when it comes to sexuality and consent for sex, what what was sexuality like in the first century for women? Uh, oh, do, wow. do we did, was there even a concept of sexual abuse of women in the first century?
1: Yeah, oh, it's interesting you say that. Um, Kyle Kyle Harper wrote a sensational book called uh, "From Shame to Sin," looking at the original sexual revolution. When we think of the sexual revolution, we think of the nineteen sixties. Um, but he says the most significant, the most enduring, the most influential revolution in sexual values happened in the first century. Um, and what really happened there, if, if the 60s, if the 1960s was all about saying to women, you can be as licentious as men have always been. The sexual revolution of the first century was saying, men, you must be as restricted as women have always been. And that was... Um, that was very new in the ancient world. Uh, there simply wasn't a word for an adult male virgin in Latin. In in Latin, if you referred to a virgin, you were referring to a woman because it was it was expected that huh. uh, a man, an adult male, was obviously not going to be a virgin. There was, there was no Latin word for, for uh, an adult male virgin. There were 25 words for prostitute. Gosh. Um, so this is... Um, this is the kind of culture, and, and Tom Holland, the historian, uh, writes about how in Latin, the same word for urinate is, is the word for ejaculate. And, and he said, basically, to a freeborn Roman male, anybody who was your inferior, which was pretty much everybody, um, could be considered like, like a toilet. you know, And, and it was a f- terrifying world, really, of, of what we would call exploitation, but that is a category that was invisible to the Roman mind. And Kyle Harper makes a a, a great case for saying what we consider as abuse, an ancient Roman male would consider the perfectly appropriate use for sex. Um, So here here was a world that's just so alien to today. In in the book, I talk about uh, Rachel Dan Hollander, um, who was one of the first whistleblowers against um, a great abuser, a terrible abuser, uh, the, the team doctor of, uh, of USA Nasser. gymnastics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to say his name, but yeah. Oh, so he. Sorry. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought you he, forgot um, it. My bad. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, wow, I mean, just and we consider him um, rightly to be a, a man of unconscionable evil. She, in her um, in her victim impact statement in 2017, before his sentencing, she said, "I want you to give the biggest sentence you possibly can." to this man, because I want you to send a a statement about what a little girl is worth. And Rachel's written this book called What a Little Girl is Worth, a a terrific book. Um, And she says, please give him the, the harshest sentence possible to send the message about what a little girl is worth, because we know that a little girl is worth everything. And I think everything in us rises up and says, yes, you're right, Rachel, And yet, if you asked an ancient Roman, what is a little girl worth? Um, You might get the answer, well, um, if you buy her from a slave master, she's worth about eight months wage. Or if you just want her for an evening at the brothel, she costs the same as a loaf of bread. Or if you tour the rubbish dumps where the little girls are getting exposed, and if you get there before the slave master and the, the master of the brothel, then you could probably get her for free um to ask the question what is a little girl worth um receives a very different answer in in pre-christian societies and and if we answer the question what is a little girl worth the same way Rachel Den Hollander does by saying everything i think that that genuinely is our christianity talking
2: that's such a great answer that we we so often hear the failings of the church and you recognize them and concede them and talk about them but we also got to go deeper and say what even enabled us to have the value of a girl and what led to society valuing young girls. Uh, it has Christian roots. So it's, it's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I love the way you approach this. Now, you yeah. also talk about in a way that I think is really interesting, uh, transgender ideology. You say it emerges from convictions that would be inconceivable without Christianity, but is ultimately divorced from them. Explain.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, my first three values that I look at in the book are equality, compassion, and consent. And I think equality is just the the moral equality of every single human being, no matter their race or religion or class or wealth or anything. Um, What happens when you divorce equality from its roots in the Christian story is you start to get um, a, a kind of a hyper individualized sense of equality. And, you know, one of the great sins of the West, um, West is not best. One of the great sins of the West is our hyper individualism. And for us, this beautiful gift of equality that Christianity has given to the world, we've kind of turned that into an individualism so that in the Bible, our equality is basically to all be equally welcome around the same table. Nowadays, we think of equality as being equally high up our individual ladders. So that's a very different kind of sense of equality that we've, we've now taken. When we think of compassion in the Bible, compassion is to be the Good Samaritan and to show mercy on those who are weak and, and marginalized and, and can't help themselves. Nowadays, when we've divorced compassion from the Christian story, we get what sociologists call competitive victimhood, where we don't try to uh, help the victim so much. We try to be the victim. And it becomes the Oppression Olympics. And, and um, so that, that's another kind of detachment of compassion from the Christian story and a sort of distortion of it. And then when it comes to consent, um, we pretty much think that that is the only value um, that, that now um, holds when it comes to, to sex and sexuality, um, as opposed to one value out of a, a rich tapestry of values. And so choice in the sexual realm becomes almighty. Now, recombine those those three detached values, and you've got individualism, competitive victimhood, and the absolute nature of my choice when it comes to my sexuality. Recombine those three things, and what do you get? You get transgender ide- ideology, essentially. And is that a very different thing from what you get on page one of the Bible? Absolutely. But... That transgender ideology is inconceivable without the Christian revolution that has given us the air that we breathe and, and the moral apparatus that we've taken, divorced, distorted, and then recombined in this new way.
0: Glenn, let me go a little bit further with this notion of what happens when these values become separated from their Christian roots and their their roots in the Christian story. I love what our, our friend Os Guinness calls this the cut flower civilization, uh, that we we can't expect these values to bloom indefinitely if they are cut off from their roots. How, how much longer do you think that these notions of freedom, equality, consent, progress, and so on, will remain part of the air that we breathe? I don't know. Um, but I also
1: don't think that's the goal um, in that – the, there's something very dangerous about us having detached the values from the story which gave rise to the values. Um, what has tended to happen is we want the values of the kingdom. We don't want the king. And that has, that has revealed uh, a very surprising turn of events. I think we thought that without God, everything would just be permissive. Um, now we're realizing that without God, everything is preachy really painfully so
2: <laughs>
1: and we're not just licentious we we we're, we're licentious and legalists about it hmm. um, why is that i think i think so much of why that is is we've we've kept the desire to be preachy we've kept the desire to enlighten those who are in the dark we've kept the the desire to anathematize people and call them blasphemers and heretics and excommunicate them aka cancel them we, we've we've kept that religious instinct, and we've kept so many of the values of the kingdom, but without the king who embodies them, and without the saviour who forgives us when we fail. So my my great um, desire is not so much that we hold on to the values. But what, while ever we have such values, and wh- while ever there are these moral intuitions that are operative in people, what I really want to do is say, pull on that thread. You you believe in compassion? Keep pulling on that thread, because there's someone at the other end of that, and he's so much better than an abstract moral value. He is kindness himself, who sacrificed himself for you, the weakest, that you, the weakest, might survive and more than survive, thrive. And 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 so my my real goal is not Let's preach the gospel so that we get the values. It's let's, let's look at whatever values there are out there in the culture and use them to get us back to the king. Because the values of the kingdom without the king, it, it just becomes hellish. I, I use a quote from C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, who says that uh, semi-Christianity is the worst kind of religion in the world mm. because it's all law and no grace. And for the whole world to have a semi-Christianity, for the whole world to simply have the values of the kingdom without the king himself, that's, that's really no good. So my goal is not, let's get back to values. Uh, my goal is you already have values. Therefore, you're already a believer, whether you've ever set foot inside a church or not. You are a believer. You believe in all sorts of nonsense stuff that makes no sense without <laughs> Jesus. And I want, I want through those values to you to, to come to the king who makes sense of the values.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate that the the goal is not to um, maintain these values as important as they are apart from a relationship with the king. Uh, I think that that's abs- that's absolutely right. I, I will say though that uh, these values have provided pretty fertile soil hmm. for the king for the advancement of the king as, as well. Uh, what? So one, one final question, I think, what gives you hope in, in recognizing that these, you know, these ideas are not the goal, I get that, but, but what gives you hope that these values will remain self-evident mm. in, in our, in our yeah. increasingly, according to some, increasingly secular culture?
1: I don't think they will be self-evident to anyone if we do not preach them and if we do not preach them as though we believe in them. And in a sense I before I want the world to believe in these values, I want the church to believe in these values. I, I want us to believe in Christ. And you know Christ had no anxiety whatsoever about the success of his kingdom. He knew that like yeast working through a batch of dough, it would get do the job, like, like the mustard seed that grows into the largest plant. The, the, the kingdom of Christ will have dominion and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, which is a fantastic prophecy, isn't it, in, in Matthew chapter 16? Because gates do not advance. The church advances and plunders the, the kingdom of darkness and has continued to plunder the kingdom of darkness since Matthew 16, which is just an extraordinary comfort. And it gives incredible confidence to Christians that the church continues to grow and will continue to grow. I have have no anxiety about the success of the kingdom. And I think what Christ really wants us to do is not be anxious about the growth or the lack of growth within that Matthew 13 parable where he ends up with the the mustard seed. Um, He talks about all sorts of opponents to the kingdom. There, There are birds that peck at the seed and there's shallow soil and there's thorns and there's weeds. And Jesus never says, dig up the rocks. He never says, prune back the thorns. He never says, kill the weeds. He just says, sow the seed, sow the seed, sow the seed, sow the seed. And by the end of Matthew 13, even the birds that at the beginning of the chapter had pecked at the word, even those who had opposed the kingdom end up perching in the branches of the tree that the kingdom has grown. And I, I I guess my, my my big plea to Christians is have real confidence. It it doesn't seem self evident to a Roman that the gladiatorial games are wrong. It, it never seemed self evident to them. But Christians believed that they paid for it with their own lives as they got fed to the lions, and somehow through the the blood of the, the blood of Jesus and the word of their testimony. They, they gained victory. It, it never seemed self-evident that you should care about the little girls exposed on the rubbish dumps. But Christians kept on preaching and they kept on living out this gospel. It did not seem self-evident to people that Africans were of the same value as 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 Westerners. And yet, people preached and people preached, and eventually there there was transformation. So, I, I guess my my real plea to to Christians is: no matter how weird it sounds to the culture's ears. Let's have confidence in the in the growth of this kingdom. Let's keep sowing the seed.
0: Here, here. That's a, that's a, a great final admonition, to, I think, to all of us, uh, that we keep we keep the keep first things first, uh, and the priority of preaching the King with the coming of His kingdom. So, Glenn, thank you so much for being with us. We I want to commend your book to our listeners, entitled "The Air We Breathe," subtitled How We All Came to Believe in Freedom kindness, progress, and equality. It's a terrific book uh, and we highly recommend it. So, Glenn, we're very grateful for your work and for coming on with us today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including the new fully online bachelor's program in Bible theology and apologetics. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with our friend Glenn Scrivener, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.